Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The evening of May 27, 1981, was typical for Scottsdale, Arizona. Warm, dry, and distant lightning. The only hint that monsoon season was approaching the wealthy community of McCormick Ranch. The streets were lined with beautiful tract homes and luxury cars. Neighbors looked out for each other. In the Steinberg household on Via de Luz, 37-year-old Stephen relaxed in the den, watching late-night TV. His wife, 34-year-old Ilana, was already asleep in the master bedroom. Down the hall, their two preteen daughters, Tracy and Sean, secretly stayed up late, excited over the last day of school coming up. Tracy went through her school books, erasing any pencil marks she'd left behind so she could turn them back in. It was an idyllic evening, a familiar one. Before heading to bed himself, Stephen slid open the glass patio doors in the master bedroom leading out into the backyard. He knew his wife liked the breeze and it was the perfect evening for it. There were no concerns over leaving doors open or unlocked in McCormick Ranch. Crime, especially violent crime, was extremely low in all of Scottsdale, and even more so in this quiet community. But only a few moments after Stephen closed his eyes, Elana screamed in terror. Stephen snapped awake. Two intruders loomed over the couple. One of them held down his wife. The other brandished a 10-inch butcher knife. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Not Guilty in the search bar. This week, we're examining the 1981 murder of Alana Steinberg. We'll walk through the immediate investigation into her murder and the problems in the Steinberg's marriage it brought to light. We'll also see how police were able to make an arrest on the very night of Alana's murder. 
Next week, we'll follow the resulting criminal trial and understand how Ilana's alleged killer presented a unique defense. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. A few streets away from the Steinberg household, two police officers, Kevin Chadwick and Paulette Cachetta, made their usual rounds in McCormick Ranch. It was a simple, almost boring job, mostly consisting of uneventful patrols and the odd petty theft. May 27, 1981, started off as quietly as any other shift. But suddenly, at 12.07 a.m., 911 dispatch received an unusual call. A panicked man screamed into the phone that his wife had been murdered by intruders. A moment of silence, then a young girl picked up the line, sobbing and begging for help. Dispatch quickly directed Chadwick and Cachetta to the Steinberg house on Via de Luz. The two officers had no idea what to expect and were decidedly on edge. Neither had any experience with violent crime, let alone murder. They immediately felt out of their depth. When the officers arrived on the scene, 37-year-old Steven Steinberg spilled out onto the lawn barefoot, wearing only a bathrobe, his hand wrapped in a towel. He shouted at the officers hysterically, repeating that two intruders had stabbed his wife, Ilana, before escaping out the back door. Officers Chadwick and Cushetta ordered him to wait outside, drew their guns, and entered the house. Inside, they heard children crying in a back room. Cautiously, the two officers walked down the long hallway to the closed door of the master bedroom. They passed both of the Steinberg daughters' rooms on the way, but could only offer a passing word of comfort to Tracy and Sean as they continued on. Neither officer was sure of what to do, except to keep approaching that closed door. Officer Chadwick felt in his gut whatever waited in the master bedroom would be devastating. The look on Stephen's face and the anguished cries from the two little girls had shaken him deeply. Even without violent crime experience, Chadwick knew they were about to step into something ghastly. When he pushed open the door, his darkest fears were confirmed. The master bedroom was covered in blood. The walls, the bed, the mattress. Blood dripped off the bed covers and pooled onto the floor. And next to the bed, twisted in the covers, was 34-year-old Ilana Steinberg, dozens of vicious stab wounds covering her petite body. Officer Chadwick checked her pulse but knew there was no real need. Alana Steinberg was dead, murdered where she slept. Chadwick and his partner quickly summoned the rest of the team to the crime scene. The house was thrown into chaos as nearly two dozen officers arrived at the Steinberg residence. Friends and neighbors crowded in the living room as well, offering comfort to Stephen and his daughters. 
There was a lot of pressure on the Scottsdale PD to get this investigation right. The police were still reeling from the embarrassment of bungling a previous high-profile murder investigation. Only a few years earlier, popular television star Bob Crane was found murdered in his home, bludgeoned with what investigators believed to be a camera tripod. But due to police contamination at the crime scene that destroyed evidence, the case remained unsolved. Police were determined to do things differently moving forward and even recruited veteran officers to the force to better prepare them if anything like the Crane murder happened again. One of those recruits, forensic expert Cecil Kirk, carefully worked the scene at the Steinberg house, photographing the brutality and measuring everything he could. On his order, officers scoured the home, focusing on the master bedroom to see if they could find anything out of place. Fibers, hair, fingerprints. As they documented the bedroom, the officers noticed something strange about the crime scene. Stephen told the police that Ilana's murder was the result of a violent robbery. The violence was clear. Ilana's body was brutalized and blood covered the walls. But there wasn't visible evidence of a robbery. Of the entire master bedroom, only a single item had been disturbed, Alana's underwear drawer. It struck a chord with lead detective Frank Hilton as well. After seven years on the force, this was his first murder investigation. Serious and by the books, the same refrains running through every officer's mind were even stronger for him. Things like this don't happen in Scottsdale, let alone McCormick Ranch. The Bob Crane case was an outlier. We don't have violent murders here. The cut on Stephen's hand was still bleeding, so while they waited for an ambulance to arrive to take him to the hospital, Hilton took the grieving man's statement. Hilton noted that Stephen was talkative, but behaved erratically. He swung back and forth between questioning his reality, asking if his wife was really gone, to grieving the loss by slamming his head against the wall. At one point, he remarked, there goes 15 years down the drain. Stephen described the burglars as two large white men with bushy hair and fake beards. The men apparently entered the master bedroom through the sliding glass door he had opened before going to bed. While holding the couple down, they demanded to know where the jewelry was. But after Stephen showed them, the burglars declared that the valuables weren't enough. And that's when the man holding down Alana viciously attacked her, stabbing her over and over while Stephen struggled to get free. He had no explanation as to why the robbers had spared him. The only wound Stephen suffered was the one on his hand, the result of his attempts to stop the stabbing. It wasn't just Detective Hilton whose stomach turned upon hearing this story. All of Stephen's family and friends were horrified when they gathered at the scene. How could something like this happen in their neighborhood? And how could something like this happen to the Steinbergs? From the outside, they were a perfect couple, good-looking, successful, beautifully kept home, well-behaved daughters. What kind of monster would want to destroy that? 
Less than two hours after the initial 911 call, Kirk reported his early forensic findings to Detective Hilton. Ilana Steinberg was stabbed 26 times, four of which were mortal injuries. Her wounds were anywhere from one to four inches deep. The knife had struck vital organs, including the brain. She had additional wounds on her hands and arms, defensive wounds. Alana had attempted to fight back against her attacker. Upon hearing this, Alana's mother, Edith, erupted in grief. She whirled on Stephen, shaming him for letting this happen. He was a strong, healthy man. Did he even try to fight back? To save Alana's life? Alana's brother, Mitch, berated Stephen for failing to protect his sister during the attack. Stephen could only feebly point to his injured hand as evidence he'd tried to intervene. The argument swelled, going back and forth until Alana's father, Barney, fainted. Detective Hilton, not wanting to get sucked into the family drama, assigned another officer to try and keep the peace in the living room and went back to work. He sent pairs of police officers out into the neighborhood to patrol, looking for anyone matching Stephen's description of the burglars. Even still, Hilton couldn't shake the feeling something was off about this case. The attackers hadn't left much evidence, no forced entry, no footprints in the damp grass outside, and none of the outdoor furniture or locked gates appeared to have been disturbed. Even the underwear drawer, the only item out of place, had been handled so gently there wasn't any obvious evidence to be gleaned from it. Hilton slowly realized the difficult work they had cut out for them. Combating his rising concerns, Hilton doubled down on the one thing holding his investigation together, closely following procedure. After Stephen left for the hospital at about 2 a.m., Hilton made a crucial phone call. He contacted the county attorney's office, requesting the presence of a prosecutor on the scene. He reasoned that a prosecutor would be able to keep an eye on the police work and witness treatment to head off any procedural mistakes before they could happen. Any missteps here could later botch a trial, and Detective Hilton planned to avoid that if at all possible. By three o'clock, Deputy County Attorney Jeffrey Hotham arrived at the house on Via de Luz. And while Hilton and his team, up to this point, felt like they had been doing their best at following the rules, Hotham immediately noticed a mistake. While the master bedroom had been locked down, the rest of the house had been contaminated by police, allowing friends and family of the Steinbergs to wait in the living room. Hotham quickly stepped in, trying to course-correct the investigation wherever he could. It could have easily been a tug-of-war of egos between Hotham and Detective Hilton, but having the deputy attorney there actually helped Hilton shake some of his rising concerns. Hilton and the other officers quickly brought Hotham up to speed. Officer Mark Barnett remarked that there was something not quite right with Stephen's demeanor, labeling him as passively hostile. Apparently, Stephen had called Officer Barnett an expletive when he tried to calm him down. Officer Chadwick agreed with Barnett's take on Stephen, even going so far as to question the superficial wound on his hand. 
How had he escaped with such minor injuries while his wife was subject to such severe overkill? By this time, the police patrols Hilton had ordered began to lose steam. There seemed to be nothing out of the ordinary elsewhere in McCormick Ranch, which wasn't much of a surprise. But Hilton knew that while McCormick Ranch and Scottsdale as a whole felt like a protected, idyllic swath of high society life, not everything could be picture perfect all the time. And when Alana's brother, Mitch Singer, approached the detective, his suspicions were confirmed. Mitch felt obligated to tell the police the truth about his sister and her husband. There was more going on in their marriage than the image of domestic bliss they projected. In his eyes, Steven Steinberg had been spiraling dangerously out of control for years. Coming up, Detective Hilton and Deputy Attorney Hotham realized that Stephen was in all kinds of trouble, trouble that might be connected to his wife's murder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. As Detective Frank Hilton was leading the murder investigation at the Steinberg House in the early morning hours of May 28, 1981, he uncovered a clearer picture of the family's dynamic. After interrogating family members and witnesses, Hilton learned there was trouble in the Steinberg marriage. Stephen had a gambling problem. Alana's brother, Mitch Singer, divulged the troubled history of Stephen and Alana's marriage to the detective. For years, Stephen's gambling addiction had slowly spiraled out of control. He had started with card games, rising to near-professional levels when he was still a teenager. He experienced multiple big wins, and Mitch suspected these early rewards set Stephen down the path of his decaying addiction. When he married Alana in 1966, Stephen kept his gambling somewhat under control, betting only what the family could afford to lose. Alana didn't really mind at first, having grown up around casual gambling, a sometimes hobby of her father's. 
But only a year later, Stephen experienced his first major loss while vacationing in Las Vegas. He lost so much money, he hid it from Alana. This kicked off a losing streak Stephen just couldn't seem to shake. And with each loss, he doubled down, chasing that one big win that would finally turn his luck back around. This is the nature of gambling addiction. Once the high of winning is shattered, the gambler continues pursuing the win at all costs. Experts caution that once an addict experiences that first streak of bad luck, the disease progresses quickly and dangerously. It often ends with the gambler in poverty, in jail, or with his loved ones destroyed. Stephen soon resorted to using bookies and even took out secret loans to hide his losses and worsening addiction from Alana. But even with all these evasive maneuvers, he couldn't fool his wife. She was a diligent bookkeeper and kept track of the family's finances. Stephen's gambling habit was well known to her and a deep point of contention in their marriage. She lamented to her mother and brother that she sometimes felt hopeless in the face of his addiction. Mitch told Detective Hilton that Stephen's bad luck extended past the card table. He couldn't seem to catch a break when it came to employment, either. After a series of career failures in Chicago, the Steinberg family moved to Scottsdale in 1975 so Stephen could go into business with his father-in-law, Barney Singer, selling pool and patio supplies. But after a particularly slow period of sales, that business went under as well. Stephen eventually approached Mitch to find work. Mitch Singer was once a prolific restaurant owner in Scottsdale with a number of locations. But even after Mitch made Stephen the manager of one of his restaurants, the Brass Derby, he continued to gamble, sinking deeper into his bad luck. By 1980, 36-year-old Stephen was in debt to his brother, the first federal bank, and a handful of bookies to the tune of $8,500, over $26,000 today. Unfortunately, while Mitch had been successful in the restaurant industry for years, he confessed to Hilton that business took a downturn recently. A few months before, in early 1981, Mitch was forced to find a buyer for the Brass Derby, and the buyer wanted Stephen, a known gambling addict, out of the picture. After being forced out of the restaurant, Stephen was jobless and stressed. This pressure, combined with the inability to shake his gambling losses, took a toll on Stephen's psyche, as well as his personal life. He made a losing bet on a basketball game, sending himself an additional $6,500 further into debt. At this point, Stephen owed at least $15,000, which would be nearly $50,000 in 2019. Soon after, Mitch noticed strange men visiting Stephen and Alana's home, demanding payment. Alana's mother, Edith, also noticed these men. Owing money to the bank is bad enough, but Alana's family feared that Stephen was in deep with the wrong people. Edith told Detective Hilton that just a few weeks earlier, she had received a panicked phone call from her daughter. Alana was in tears, 
The family was away on vacation in Tahoe, and Alana and Stephen had gotten into a terrible argument when he tried to go to the casino. When Alana demanded that he stay with the family, Stephen turned violent. He threw Alana against the wall, then stormed out of the rented vacation house. Alana had begged her mother for advice, but Edith had none to give. She was too shocked by Stephen's actions. When the family returned home, the couple had reconciled. Alana forgave the out-of-character violence, but in the following weeks, she continued to express her worries about the family's finances and Stephen's refusal to seek help. After hearing about Stephen's gambling addiction and history of aggression toward his wife, Detective Hilton's perception of the case began to shift. He couldn't shake the feeling that Stephen's unabated gambling ultimately had something to do with Alana's murder. When Hilton pressed Mitch and Edith Singer for more details, he learned that this wasn't the first bizarre crime Stephen was involved in. He'd actually been the victim of robbery and attempted murder more than once. In 1969, 25-year-old Stephen was home alone one night when two burglars broke in, tied him up, and stole all of Ilana's jewelry. Somehow, he managed to escape his bonds and call the police, but the robbers were never caught. Stephen filed a report with the insurance company, and they paid out the claim for the jewelry. A few years later, Stephen was the victim of a carjacking. Two men threatened him at gunpoint until he gave up his vehicle. He escaped alive and unscathed. No one in the family knew the exact details of what happened because Stephen refused to go to the police, wanting to put the event behind him. Edith confided to Hilton that on one occasion, a hidden cache of money, about $200, suddenly went missing from her kitchen. Stephen commiserated with her over the theft, insisting it must have been the apartment building's janitor, and Edith was quick to agree. She trusted her charming, caring son-in-law and took his word. Soon after, someone stole $4,000 from the cash register in Alana's father's business on a night when Stephen was working. While the other business partners suspected Stephen was responsible, Alana's father, Barney, would hear none of it. Again, the singers trusted their son-in-law and believed this series of thefts to be nothing more than coincidence and bad luck. Barney defended Stephen, straining his own business relationships in the process. But the story that really caught Detective Hilton's attention had to do with Mitch's restaurant, the Brass Derby. During Stephen's tenure as the restaurant's manager, there were a handful of thefts from the cash registers and the vault, always at that same restaurant and often when Stephen was working. And when Mitch Singer told Detective Hilton someone had stolen money from the Brass Derby earlier that night, mere hours before Alana's death, the case took a definitive turn. Two crimes in the same night, both connected to Steven Steinberg. Even though he no longer worked at the Brass Derby, the theft was too coincidental. A man like Steven, desperate, in debt, and having a deep history of erratic behavior, 
It wasn't a far leap for Hilton to think he might have targeted a restaurant he knew very well to help relieve some of his debts. In addition, the robbery occurred the same day Stephen picked up his first unemployment check. A humiliating moment, a meager sum, and a definite low point for any gambling addict. Detective Hilton and the rest of his team were now convinced that Alana's murder was not the result of a random break-in. The stories of strange men coming around to press Stephen for payment, likely the muscle for dangerous bookies and loan sharks, turned Detective Hilton onto a new theory. Perhaps Alana's murder was committed in retaliation for Stephen's debts. He may have tried to cover what he owed with the money stolen from the brass derby earlier that night, but still came up short. Hilton now suspected that Stephen lied about the nature of his wife's murder to hide the horrible truth that his gambling addiction led bookies to order a hit on Alana. When approached by Hilton, officers Chadwick and Barnett, the first to arrive on the scene, both made it clear they didn't buy Stephen's story one bit. Officer Chadwick just couldn't believe that a woman of Alana's stature, just over five feet and only 90 pounds, would be the focus of an attack carried out as part of a robbery. Two armed robbers wouldn't see her as a threat. So why was she so viciously brutalized while Stephen only sustained a cut on his palm? The disparity between the two sets of injuries just didn't make sense. Officer Barnett pointed out that most of Alana's knife wounds were on her back and side, and the mattress itself had been slashed. The positioning of the wounds and the pattern of cuts on the mattress led him to believe that Alana wasn't killed by a robber looming over her. Instead, he believed her attacker was laying in bed with her and stabbed her in the back. Detective Hilton agreed that the nature of the stabbing didn't line up with Stephen's story. He said, It was very vicious. Stabbing always is, more so than using a gun or a club. It's what you see with rage, this kind of multiple stab wounds. It's overkill, but pretty typical of people who know each other very well. It shows hatred for a person. Why would such an attack, an attack that pointed towards an intimate, potentially toxic relationship between attacker and victim, happen during a random robbery? This also cast doubt on the bookie theory. It didn't account for the personal nature of the murder. Hilton also noted that Alana hadn't died where she'd been attacked. She'd definitely been stabbed while laying in bed, as indicated by the pool of blood soaking through the center of the mattress. But Alana's body was found on the floor, tangled in the sheets, indicating that she'd attempted to run away, but collapsed on the floor and bled out. If the events of the attack played out as Stephen had described, and Alana had been held down during the stabbing, when did she have a chance to sit up, get out of bed, and try to run. In their earlier conversation, Stephen told Hilton that after the burglars fled, he ran down the hall to his daughter, Tracy's room, and told her to call the police. When he came back to the master bedroom, Alana had slid off the bed onto the floor. Detective Hilton now couldn't help but wonder why Stephen hadn't just called 911 himself. 
and if he had truly been moving quickly, giving orders to his daughter and then running back to the bedroom, why was his voice the first one the 911 operator heard? Detective Hilton and Deputy Attorney Hotham approached the forensics team leader, Detective Cecil Kirk, with their concerns that the murder might have played out differently than Stephen described. Kirk agreed there might be more to the story and expanded his search to the rest of the house. He focused on the master bathroom, where Alana's underwear drawer was located. It was a dream bathroom, typical of many of the beautiful, high-class homes in McCormick Ranch, part bath, part closet, part dressing room. The two vanities were separated into his and hers, as well as separate closet and drawer spaces. As Sergeant Kirk explored Stephen's side of the dressing area, he realized something was tucked behind the vanity mirror. He reached behind the glass and pulled out a handful of jewelry. Gold necklaces, earrings, even a diamond watch, all neatly hidden. According to forensic detective Kirk, we wondered why the jewelry was piled over here, tucked behind a mirror. It didn't fit with Steven Steinberg's story at all. To Detective Hilton, it was a confirmation of his suspicions. This was anything but a random robbery. Coming up, Detective Hilton pursues his new lead and makes a shocking discovery that turns the entire investigation on its head. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In the early morning hours of May 28, 1981, Detective Frank Hilton made a strange discovery that complicated the murder investigation at the Steinberg residence. Stephen claimed robbers had broken in, demanded their jewelry, and stabbed Alana to death when they weren't satisfied by the haul. But when Hilton's team discovered all of the Steinberg's jewelry piled up behind the mirror on Stephen's dresser, that story no longer made sense. Instead, Detective Hilton believed this pointed to one thing, a setup. Alana's brother and mother had relayed a pattern of crimes involving Stephen to Hilton. He was picking up on similar themes. Thieves always seemed to strike when Stephen owed someone money. Hilton believed that Stephen might have staged a robbery, as he had done in the past, but the faux burglars had accidentally killed Alana in the process. It was also possible that a disgruntled bookie had had enough of Stephen's delays and ordered the murder to send the ultimate message. Either way, Hilton firmly believed this killing was connected to Stephen's growing debt. Hilton directed the forensics team to research the house for possible clues to fit this theory. Any physical evidence that Stephen and the family faced mortal danger due to his gambling, or that Stephen had planned insurance fraud. 
written threats, records of secret debts, insurance forms. They opened every cupboard, checked every drawer, moved couch cushions and pillows. But aside from the jewelry, nothing was out of place other than Alana's underwear drawer. Detective Hilton was beginning to feel defeated, like he and his team were coming back to the same clues over and over again. Alana's stab wounds, the slashes in the bedspread and mattress, the blood spatter, the hidden jewelry, the open patio door. But when Officer Barnett pointed out the underwear drawer again, the entire team, Hilton especially, couldn't help but notice how bizarre that piece of the puzzle truly was. The underwear drawer, the only thing disturbed during the supposed robbery, had been gently opened, and three pairs of underwear were neatly laid on the floor near the open patio door. Hilton realized the handling of the underwear drawer was for show, further reinforcing that this attack wasn't carried out the way Stephen described. He had lied, but Detective Hilton wasn't sure why yet. Officers Barnett and Chadwick offered Hilton an educated guess. Their new theory did away with any complicated stories of setups and disgruntled loan sharks. They felt that, given Steven Steinberg's troubled past, his debts, the physical arguments he'd had with his wife, and the bizarre nature of the robbery, there was reason to suspect Stephen himself. While Hilton quickly came around to this theory, an educated guess wasn't enough to warrant an arrest. He needed more. Earlier in the night, officers Barnett and Chadwick had noticed drops of blood at the foot of the bed, drops that didn't appear to connect to the pool of blood on the floor near Alana's body. It was the only thing the crime scene team hadn't yet checked out. The entire room was splattered with blood, and a few errant drops didn't necessarily warrant a second look. But when Sergeant Kirk lifted the mattress, Detective Hilton found a shocking clue. Tucked under the bedspring was a 10-inch long, blood-stained knife, the murder weapon. Now, four hours after the initial 911 call, Detective Frank Hilton was faced with two choices. One, he could follow the case as presented by Steven Steinberg and continue the search for two bearded robbers. Or two, he could reverse course and make Steven his main suspect. From the outside, it may not have looked like a tough decision to make, all the evidence seemed to point towards Stephen, rather than random robbers or disgruntled bookies. And now they had found the murder weapon stashed under the bed. But Detective Hilton knew he and his team needed to play their cards right, or risk repeating the mistakes of the unsolved Bob Crane murder. Hilton had no interest in being the reason a killer would walk free. He returned to Cecil Kirk, if they could prove the murder weapon came from the Steinberg's own kitchen, it would cast serious doubt on Stephen's burglar story. The Steinberg home was built in a horseshoe shape, and the kitchen and master bedroom were on either end, 66 feet apart. 
If the knife came from the kitchen, the robbers would have had to have snuck in through the sliding glass door without Alana or Stephen waking up. Then one or both of the men would have had to walk the 66 feet to the kitchen, find the perfect knife for the job, and then walk all the way back without disturbing anyone in the family. After the stabbing, the intruders would have had to lift the mattress and box spring and stash the knife before escaping into the night. It was elaborate. What seemed far more plausible to Detective Hilton is that Stephen himself, at a breaking point from his gambling, his debt, and his strained marriage, made the walk to the kitchen, found the knife he knew was there, used it to murder his wife, and hid the murder weapon under the mattress. As Kirk listened to Hilton's theory and looked at the bloodied knife, he realized it likely belonged to a carving set, meaning it would have one or more matching utensils to go along with it. Sergeant Kirk remarked, There's a fork for this. I know it. It only took Hilton and Kirk a few minutes in the kitchen to find what they were looking for. In one of Alana's perfectly organized drawers laid a carving fork that matched the murder weapon exactly. And next to it, the empty spot where the knife should have been. Detective Hilton had his evidence. But another thing jumped out at Detective Hilton about the Steinberg's kitchen. It was immaculate. Not just clean, it was organized with obsessive detail. Author Shirley Frondorf described in her book, Death of a Jewish American Princess, that it's common for wives of compulsive gamblers to throw themselves into housework. Intense housekeeping helped these women retain a sense of control. It offers a distraction from family chaos. If there were any doubts before that Stephen had plunged his entire family into the dangerous pit of gambling addiction and insurmountable debt, the state of Alana's gorgeous kitchen squashed them entirely. Confident that the murder weapon came from the Steinberg's kitchen, Detective Hilton decided that it was time to re-question Stephen. However, he was still at the hospital having his hand stitched up. He called his partner, Detective Chris Bingham, who had escorted Stephen in the ambulance. Hilton asked Bingham to question Stephen about the nature of the attack one more time. Bingham obliged. He reported to Detective Hilton, he says the two men had plastic gloves on and the knife must have been long because he put his hand on it underneath theirs. He's sticking to the story that the men came in the back and wanted jewelry. At five o'clock in the morning, Detective Hilton believed he knew without a doubt who murdered Ilana Steinberg? After all of the hard work he and his team had done, the meticulous rule following, the determination to do things by the books and avoid repeating past mistakes, Hilton had his man. He immediately told Detective Bingham he'd come down to the station for one final interview with Stephen and then formally charge him with the crime. Once Stephen was discharged, Detective Bingham took him across the street to the station to begin his final interview. The officers couldn't help but notice how composed and together Stephen seemed. He wasn't trying to avoid the questions or act evasively. Hilton asked Stephen to take him through the story again, 
and Stephen was happy to oblige. Earlier in the evening, Stephen had played a softball game, bringing along his six-year-old daughter, Sean. Alana had gone to 12-year-old Tracy's flute concert at school. The family met back at home, and Alana, Tracy, and Sean were in bed by 10 p.m. Before falling asleep, Alana asked Stephen to open the sliding door to let the breeze in. Stephen then retired to the spare room, per his usual routine, and watched a few episodes of late-night television. It was just after 11.30 p.m. when he finally joined Alana in bed. The next thing he knew, his wife was screaming, and there were two falsely bearded men bending over them. The police already knew the rest. The detectives listened closely to Stephen's story. When he was finished, Detective Hilton dropped the bomb. Stephen was under arrest for the murder of his wife, Alana Steinberg. And for the first time during that interview, Stephen was shaken. His entire cool demeanor changed, and he started trembling, telling detectives, I can't believe this is happening to me. He immediately asked for a lawyer. By 5.30 in the morning on May 28th, the crime scene team at the Steinbergs had left, finished with the night's work. But the family waited. No one told them that Stephen had been arrested for Alana's murder, and they still believed the story about the two robbers. Even with all the strange circumstances surrounding Alana's death, they had not yet come to suspect that Stephen might be responsible. Every time a crime happened to Stephen, the family was quick to believe him. He was charming and had an answer for everything. They accepted his story about the bearded robbers just as they'd accepted every story he'd told before. Any other theory felt difficult to believe. But the entire family would soon be forced to face the ugly truth behind the man they all knew and loved. Thanks again for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with our next episode on Steven Steinberg. We'll cover the criminal trial proceedings and the unique arguments Steven's defense team used to try and keep him out of jail. We'll also cover the potential mistakes made by the police force and prosecution team. For more information on this case, among the many sources we consulted, we found Death of a Jewish American Princess, the true story of a victim on trial by Shirley Frondorf, helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Was Steven Steinberg guilty of the murder of his wife? Or was her death the result of a bizarre home invasion? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week.
Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Kayla Westergaard Dobson. I'm Vanessa Richardson.